0: If you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it up and find James chapter 2 ready so you can read along with me. Uh, And if you don't have one, then the verses will be up here on the screen for you to follow along. If you were with us last week, then you will have heard Dave uh, preaching from the the last half of chapter 1 of this book of James. Uh, and he spoke about us not just being a people who hear the word of god that not just being a people who have an understanding of what the bible teaches but actually being people who put it into practice who who live it out in our day to day those who who hear and obey the word of god and the last verse that we read together last week was from chapter 1 Uh, verse 27 where James writes this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. In other words, true religion, real Christianity (laughs) is not dry religious observance, it's not just attending the right meetings or saying the right words, it's not just accumulating more and more knowledge, it's a living faith. Religion that pleases God is that which finds its way out in concrete acts of love and service to others, that cares for the vulnerable and the marginalised, that loves others as we ourselves have been loved by God and that looks to God's standards of purity and not the world's and the passage that we're going to read together today really picks up uh, where we left off in chapter 1, it picks up that theme uh, and just unpacks and expands it further for us and so uh, how we're going to approach this today is we're going to we're going to read and apply as we go so we'll read a little bit then we'll unpack that section and apply it and see what it means for us and then we'll move on to the next chunk uh, and so on through the passage so we begin uh, in chapter 2 verse 1 where James writes this my brothers and sisters believers in our glorious lord jesus christ must not show favoritism James gets straight to the point at the start of this chapter. Christians must not show favouritism. People who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, at the glory of God, must not favour one person or group of people over others. We should be even-handed in our dealings with people. This is consistent with the teaching of the Bible throughout. Okay so far? Well, let's read on as James gives us an illustration to help us understand a little more of what he means. From verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James paints for us here a a sadly all too familiar scene. In the Roman world, the wealthy had the power and the influence. They were holding all the cards. The deck was stacked in their favour. The wealthy were used to preferential treatment in society. And it seems they were also getting preferential treatment in the church. James picks up on this and uses it to point out the fact that more often then we would care to admit we can discriminate in the way we treat people. Treating people differently based on outward appearance or perceived status or influence. Attributing value to people based on their wealth or their position in society. Many of us would have had that lesson in school where you role-play about a group of people in a hot air balloon, or a boat, or some other such craft. There's some impending tragedy that means someone will have to be removed from the craft and will not survive. Not everyone can stay. Someone will have to lose their life. You know the one. There's probably a doctor and a a lawyer, a banker, a bin man, uh, a vicar, an artist, so on and so forth. And each person, as you role play, has to argue their case for staying in the balloon or on the boat or the desert island or wherever it is. It's predicated on the idea that we have differing values based on our profession or contribution to society. That some people, perhaps because of what they do or what they have, are more deserving or or more valuable or more important than others. Or to state it negatively, that some people are less important or even more disposable than others. It's an uncomfortable debate to have. But sadly, in more subtle ways, it's actually how we often live our lives. As humans, we we want to be and we are drawn to and attracted towards people who we believe to be successful or powerful or important far more than we care to admit, but why? Why do we gravitate towards them? Uh, Why do we want to be seen by them and accepted by them? Well at least in part it's because we believe that we have something to gain from being connected to them, perhaps popularity or status or promotion. Tragically, we often look at relationships through the lens of what we can gain from them rather than what we might give. And in some way, we believe that the the popular or the the wealthy, the influential or important person would be more beneficial to us, but people who we judge as less important, as uh, less impressive perhaps don't have so much to offer to us, or so we think. In fact, we may even fear that they might take away from us in some way our time, our energy, our resources. Maybe we might even lose status or reputation through associating with them, so we steer clear. James takes aim here and fires and says, this even happens in the church. You know, actually not so long ago, this might sound crazy to you, but not so long ago, many churches rented pews to the wealthy. If you had money and you wanted to keep up appearances, you would rent your spot near the front so that on a Sunday, everybody knew what a good person you were, how important you were, and that you had money. The poor were left to sit at the back, or in some cases, tucked out of sight around a corner. That sounds terrible, doesn't it? That sounds unthinkable to us. But it's actually closer to home than you might care to admit. I've seen it. I've seen it played out. Not here at Foundation Church. Not yet. Although I don't want us to be proud or complacent or believe that we're in some way immune to this. I've seen it. A young couple arrives, well dressed, smiley, articulate, and people are tripping over themselves to welcome them, to say hello, to get to know them. Conversely, I've seen this too. An older man arrives, it doesn't smell good. His hair is matted. His clothes are torn and dirty. Barely anyone speaks to him. And when he takes his seat in the service, there's a a clear gap of chairs all around him. I've seen it. I've fallen into it. I've been there. It's horrid, it's abhorrent. It shouldn't happen in the church, and yet it does. We make a judgment on people based on external appearance. We find some people easier to love than others. And as we do, James says, we become judges with evil thoughts. You see, all humans are created in the image of God. All equal in dignity and value. Valuable, not because of what they do or what they have, but value because they have been made in the image of God to be loved. Not because of what we think they might add to us. Now that, That should be reason enough. But James doesn't leave it there. He doesn't let it rest there. He goes on now to layer up reasons why this is such a big deal. Let's read again from verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. The first reason James gives is that God has chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in his kingdom. By the end of the first century, the word James uses here for poor was commonly used to mean uh, spiritual poverty, which sounds negative, but actually it's not. (laughs) It means humility, meekness, being deeply aware of your lack and profoundly aware of your need for God. Jesus used this same idea in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Well, What's the opposite then of, of being poor in spirit? It's pride. The opposite of this kind of poverty is pride. It's believing that we don't need God, that we have it all together, that we're the hero of the story. This contrast for James is between those who trust in God and those who trust in the standards of the world. God doesn't choose based on who has the most or who's most impressive. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, we read that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Jesus' great victory at the cross looked like defeat looked like weakness, seems like foolishness by the world's measure, (laughs) but it's not. When you start to make your choices or form your opinions on the impressiveness of people, you miss the heart of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus. You start to look at the glory of people instead of the glory of God. See, if God chooses the poor, if God chooses those in need, when you dishonour them, when you sideline them or marginalise them, then you dishonour him. You call his choice into question. You're more awed by the glory of people than you are by the glory of God revealed in Christ Jesus, who for our sakes became poor, who was despised and rejected by people. You begin to believe that you know better than God. And that's a dangerous place to be. Remember what we read right at the start from chapter 1, verse 27? To keep oneself being polluted by the world to care for the orphans and widows. This right here is a case study on what it looks like when the church allows itself to be polluted by the world, when it takes on the world's values, when it praises what the world praises instead of what God does. God consistently chooses and works with the weak, The lowly, the poor, the marginalised, the outcast, the underdog. We see it all the way through scripture. You look at Abraham, the beginning of God's chosen people. An old man with an old barren wife and no great prospects. And God says to him, I'll make you a great nation. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Through your offspring, the nations of the earth will be blessed. How about Moses, who struggled for words and was sent as God's messenger to Pharaoh? Gideon, who was scared and and found hiding, who when he did eventually step up, then God whittled his army down and down and down to the point that it was just pathetic by the world's standards. Or how about David, a shepherd boy with a staff and a sling against Goliath, a giant of a man with with impressive armour and intimidating weaponry. Or Mary, the unmarried virgin girl. Chosen to bear Christ Jesus. The list goes on. All poor. All aware that they needed God. That he was the glorious one and not them. And yet still we measure things the wrong way. You'd think we'd have got the point, wouldn't you? By choosing and using the weak, God's glory is displayed. Because we can't take the credit. It's all his. And then James adds another layer and highlights an uncomfortable truth. He writes this from verse 6 Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He's saying to them, guys, you honour the rich man and not the poor man. Just think a minute. Who are the ones oppressing you? Who are the ones most against the message of Jesus? Who are the ones who oppose God and reject his word? Well, in this case, he says the rich and powerful. Those who aren't poor in spirit. And yet these are the very people you're pandering to. The very people you're trying to imitate. The very people who you're honouring and trying to curry favour with. This is crazy. James is saying to them, you're so concerned with being relevant and acceptable and impressing these impressive people that you're overlooking the fact That they're the ones opposing the gospel and persecuting you. When the church is more concerned with being relevant and acceptable to the world than it is with living to please God, then we are in trouble. Yet that's exactly what happens too often. And it's really a question of worship. And that's what James helps us see here. You see, James has already mentioned, right at the start, the glory of Jesus. Right back in verse 1. And this is the contrast. See, what should captivate us is the glory of Jesus. Jesus is the, the truly impressive one. Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the one we should worship. But we're so easily impressed with the glory of people. And we want to please them. We can look at people and think, wow, how influential and impressive they are. Just amazing. And instead of living for the approval of God, instead of being captivated by his glory... We crave the approval of people. We try to find ways to make Christianity more palatable and acceptable and appealing to them so that they don't think we're weird and so that they don't reject us. You don't have to look very far to see this being played out in the church around the world today. And James Doesn't let up. He keeps going. It doesn't feel like very good news. From verse 8, he says this. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, see, he hooks it back (laughs) to what they're doing. If you show favouritism, you sin. And are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, You shall not commit adultery, also said, You shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a lawbreaker. If we keep the whole of the law and fail at just one point, we're just as guilty as if we've broken the whole lot. And James reminds us here of what he calls the royal law. (laughs) It's, It's the heart and essence of what Jesus teaches. When asked what the greatest command was, Jesus said, Love the Lord your God and love your neighbour as yourself. Showing favouritism, James tells us here, breaks this law. It fails to show love to your neighbour. When you discriminate, or when you ignore or avoid the poor, When you prefer the rich, you have broken the law. James really tightens the screw here. I'm guilty. I've broken the law. And I would be very surprised if you're not guilty too. And he's not going to let up think like, man, James, I hope there's good news coming, because this is tough. Let's read again from verse 12. He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. This is serious. James reminds us that we are going to be judged. And that we should be aware of that in the way we live. You see, if we are unforgiving and judgmental, we fail to extend mercy. When we discriminate, when we judge people based on what we perceive of them, we fail To extend mercy. And when we fail to extend mercy, the Bible teaches that we will not receive mercy. Jesus said it, and James repeats it here. When you set yourself up in judgment over people, deciding who is and isn't deserving, deciding who is and isn't worthy of love and kindness, you fail to show mercy. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He says it in other places too. We don't have time to to look at them all now. To be clear. No. Just. I want to make this point of clarification. Extending mercy doesn't mean overlooking or ignoring or celebrating sin. It doesn't mean calling what God calls wrong right. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean having a humble attitude and putting yourself alongside that person. You too have fallen short. You too have sinned. You too need forgiveness. So you should forgive as you've been forgiven. So you point them to Jesus. Help them to find forgiveness and hope in him rather than judging and discriminating against them. So James says, speak and act as those who are about to be judged not just hearers of the word but doers now i don't want you to feel condemned and burdened but i do want you to feel the appropriate weight of this if you're feeling conviction like you identify with what james is talking to the church about and you think, gosh, I've, I've, I'm guilty of that. I've done that. You feel conviction over that. Do you know? It's probably a good thing. It's probably a sign you're a Christian and that your desire is to please God, to live for him. And you're not going to be perfect. But you should be making progress. And, and this awareness that we've fallen short just leads us to a place of repentance, of asking God to forgive us and asking him to fill us with his spirit and help us to live for him, help us to not show favoritism, help us to care for those around us irrespective of what they may or may not be able to do for us. But if you're hearing this and you're making excuses for yourself, thinking about all the ways that this doesn't apply to you uh, and why you don't need to respond in any way, then lovingly and respectfully, I want to tell you today that you're in danger you need to wake up there's a warning here for you where there is no progress there's a problem so are you growing in love of God and love of others do you care so how how then do we change? How do we grow in this? How are we to respond? Well, finally, James' last verse brings hope. Lifts the burden of perfection off our shoulders so that it might not crush us. As he writes this, mercy triumphs over judgment. James' answer is effectively that we should remember what Christ has done for us. Remember that Jesus' act of love, his sacrifice at the cross was an act of mercy. And remembering that mercy triumphs over judgment, we come and repent of our sin. Turn your back on it and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Consider who you've been judgmental of, unforgiving towards, who you've looked down your nose at or rejected. Have you been more concerned with the approval of people than God? Ask him to forgive you. And remember this, that mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember this, that it's not your awesomeness that counts, but his Mercy, no matter how good you think you are, you do not measure up. Trust me, you don't want judgment. What you need is mercy. And gloriously, through Jesus, God extends mercy to us. He forgives. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. We're no longer condemned under the weight of our sin, but we find freedom and forgiveness in him. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember the triumph of God's mercy in your life. Remember that he's extended grace to you that he hasn't treated you as your sins deserve. He hasn't turned his back on you and rejected you, but instead he's moved towards you in love through the person of Jesus Christ and made a way for you to be united in relationship with him. Dwell on it, delight in it, glory in your sins forgiven. Allow it to melt your stubborn and proud heart and ask God to fill you again with his spirit. That you might extend grace as you've received grace, that you might forgive others as you've been forgiven by Him, that you might love and serve others as you've been loved by Him. I'm going to pray for us now and then hand back to Joe to sing one final song. Lord, we thank you that you have shown mercy towards us at the cross. Please, would you help us, Lord, this week to be those who love as we've been loved by you. Father, if there are people who we need to put things right with, would you give us the courage to put things right? Would you give us the humility and grace to ask for forgiveness and to offer forgiveness where we need to do so this week? Lord, would you give us your heart for others? Help us to see people as you see them. Help us to be those who go in the power of your spirit this week to love and serve those you've placed around us, poor and rich, weak and strong, all of the men and women created in your image to be loved by you. Lord, would you send us out this week in the power of your spirit to love and serve them for your glory. Amen. Oh.